0: Hi, church family. (laughs) My name is Micah Sanders. Uh, I am the cellist from the quartet, uh, and I'm going to read scripture today. Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 27, 1 through 13. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say, go and get them for me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thanks. Good morning. You know, there's this saying that's common among church people. Maybe you've heard it before. It goes something like this. Pray as though everything depended on God, and then work as though everything depended on you. Maybe you've seen it on inspirational artwork like this. Here it's attributed to the um, African 5th century pastor Augustine. I've also seen it attributed to Charles Spurgeon, Oprah Winfrey, Martin Luther, Ignatius of Loyola, and I'm not sure any of them actually said it. And I suppose the basic idea of this saying is that we shouldn't be passive. That if we care about something enough to pray about it, about God to do something in our lives or in our world, we ought to be willing to do more than pray about it. But, friends, I am convinced that this is terrible advice praying as though everything depends on god is great yes we should pray and pray often but working as though everything depended on us is a terrible way to live and today in our series we're going to see what happens when an entire family works as though everything depended on them and it's not a pretty picture We're three weeks into a sermon series based on the life of Jacob called What Is Your Name? And the story of Jacob is found in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. After God created the world in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and created the first man and first woman in God's image, in chapter 3, sin entered into the world through the disobedience of the first man and first woman. And then sin spread with the intensity of an avalanche, bringing with it destruction and hatred and murder and corruption to the entire human race. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, if you're reading Genesis, you see that humanity will destroy itself if God does not intervene somehow. And so in chapter 12 of Genesis, God intervenes and chooses one family from among all the families, the family of Abraham and Sarah. And he promises that through this family and their descendants that God will stop the avalanche of sin in our world, and that God will extend the blessing of salvation through them and their family to all of the other families and nations of the earth. As Christians, we believe that promise to Abraham and Sarah was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was born as a descendant of this family, And through his sinless life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of the Father and then his gift of the Holy Spirit upon the church, now indeed God's blessing of salvation is being extended and offered to all of the families and all of the nations of the earth. Jesus fully and perfectly and completely fulfills this promise to Abraham and Sarah. But when God first made that promise, Abraham and Sarah had one little problem. They didn't have any children yet. And for many years, they lived by faith that God would ultimately and eventually provide them with a son so this promise could move from their generation to the next generation. And eventually, God did provide that son, Isaac, the son of promise. And thus, God's plan to bring his blessing of salvation inched closer to us through, G- through the birth of Isaac, Isaac. And Isaac grew up and married Rebekah. And when Rebekah became pregnant, God's promise was poised to move to the third generation through Isaac and Rebekah's child. But since Rebekah was pregnant with twins as readers of Genesis, we wonder which of these two will be the one to advance God's plan to the third generation creeping ever closer towards us. During Rebecca's pregnancy, the twins jostled with each other within her womb. And she was so troubled by this experience of what was happening within her own body that she sought God to try to understand it. And according to Genesis 25, God spoke to Rebecca. And here's what God said Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older son will serve the younger son. The older will serve the younger. This word from God indicates God's choice of the younger son, the second born of the twins, to be the one to advance God's plan to the next generation. And when the time came for these twins to be born, they named the firstborn Esau and the secondborn Jacob. Jacob was born grasping his brother Esau's heel, and so that's where he got his name, Jacob, which is a a play on words in the Hebrew language for heel grasper. And these two boys could not have been more different from each other. And as they grew up, true to Rebecca's experience of them in the womb, they often clashed. Now, the second born, Jacob, is the focus of this sermon series. And he is one of the most crafty, devious people that you will find in the entire Bible. In fact, I was thinking that if Jacob was a character in the Marvel Comics universe, Jacob would be Loki, the stepbrother of Thor. In fact, like Loki, Jacob grows up in the shadow of his older brother, always the runner-up, always second. And so he develops this philosophy of life that anything that good that happens in his life will happen because he does it himself, driven by self-interest, self-preservation and ambition, Jacob is always looking for an angle and always putting himself first. Heel grasper indeed. On one occasion, Jacob was making stew, and Pastor Greg talked about this episode two weeks ago, and and Esau arrived after several unsuccessful days of hunting, and and Esau was famished, and and so he asked Jacob for some of the stew that, that Jacob was preparing, and Jacob always the opportunist saw an angle to work. So he said, sure, I'll give you some of the stew in exchange for your birthright, the Hebrew word for birthright in Genesis is the word bekorah and it refers to Esau's rights as the firstborn son his bekorah. In the ancient world the firstborn son would s- receive a double portion of the family inheritance. And so once Jacob or once Isaac dies his inheritance would be divided up into thirds. The firstborn Esau would receive two-thirds, and the second-born Jacob, one-third. Jacob sees Esau's hunger as an opportunity to exploit. Heel grasper indeed. But what's even more surprising about that story is the fact that Esau actually agrees to it. What good is my birthright if I die of hunger right here? And then the author of Genesis adds in Genesis chapter 25, verse 34, thus Esau despised his birthright. In other words, Esau had no regard for his unique role in this family, and by extension, Esau had no regard for this family's role in the unfolding plan of God to reverse the avalanche of sin in our world and extend the blessings of God to all the families of the earth. And that brings us to our reading today from Genesis 27. In this event, we're going to see what happens when an entire family lives as if everything depends on them. And keep in mind, God has already indicated to Rebecca that he will advance his plan for the world through the second born Jacob. The older will serve the younger. But rather than trusting in God's promise, the characters of Genesis 27, particularly Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob, are, are scrambling as if everything depends on them. The chapter opens with Jacob and Esau as grown men, and Isaac as elderly and blind and close to death. And so Isaac calls for his firstborn, Esau, to give him the customary patriarchal blessing. The Hebrew word for the rights of the firstborn is Bekorah. Jacob already has that. But the Hebrew word for the patriarchal blessing is Berakah, which is roughly the equivalent of a father's last will and testament for his children. The barakah included the inheritance that was passed to the children, but it also included the father's pronouncement of his blessing, his hopes and dreams and wishes. And it was believed that once the patriarchal blessing was spoken, it was irrevocable and unchangeable. Although Esau has forfeited his firstborn rights, he's still entitled to an inheritance into a blessing. But what's strange about this scene is the fact that the passing on of the patriarchal blessing was usually a public ceremony with all the family members present. Every other place in the Bible we read about this ceremony, all the family members are present. And the father gives a blessing to each of his children. But here, Isaac calls Esau privately and sends him out on a secret mission to make his favorite meal and this is a clue to us that something is wrong with this scenario does Isaac know about God's word to Rebecca that the older would serve the younger the text really doesn't tell us so we're not sure but Isaac seems to be manipulating his circumstances in order to position Esau to carry God's plan to the next generation and to trying to leave Jacob completely out. Instead of having the customary public ceremony with all the children present, Isaac tries to pull one over on his wife, Rebecca, and his second-born Jacob. Isaac is working as though everything depended upon him. But Rebecca overhears the whole conversation. And the way the narrative reads, Rebecca is the one pulling the strings in this episode. Once Esau goes hunting, Rebecca calls Jacob and lays out an even more devious plan to subvert Isaac's devious plan. While Esau is away hunting, Rebekah will cook up some of Isaac's favorite food, and then she'll send in Jacob, masquerading as Esau, with the food so he can receive the patriarchal blessing instead. Jacob is reluctant. Not because he has any moral qualms about it, but because he's afraid of getting caught. He thinks it's a crazy idea. What if I get cursed instead of blessed? And Rebecca says, let any curse fall upon me instead of you. So Jacob agrees. Because Isaac is blind, they devise a plan. If you keep reading chapter 27, beyond what we heard read... um, And so Jacob wears Esau's clothes and he puts animal skins draped over his arms so he feels hairy like Esau. It's a bizarre plan when you think about it. (laughs) And before we're too hard on Rebecca, let's remember when she lived. This is at least 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, at least 4,000 years ago, maybe longer, no one's really sure. In the ancient Near East, marriage was very different than it is today. And and although Genesis tells us that Isaac and Rebecca loved each other, we should not read our our modern ideas about Christian marriage into this account. Because in the ancient Near East, wives had no voice in marriage. Marriage laws were a subcategory of property laws. So we we shouldn't imagine that Isaac and Rebecca got a sitter for the twins every Tuesday night so they could go to Applebee's and have honest communication about who was going to get the patriarchal blessing. In the ancient world, the man decided unilaterally, and once he decided, it was a done deal. And so when Rebecca overhears Isaac's plan, she faces a very difficult choice. The choice to either trust God despite her husband's obvious attempts to subvert God's plan or a choice to intervene in order to advance God's plan. She faces the choice of either praying as if it all depends on God and doing nothing else or working as if it depends on her. And Rebecca chooses the latter. So with Rebecca's urging, Jacob agrees to go to his father, masquerading as his brother Esau. And in the rest of the chapter, Isaac seems to realize that his blindness makes him vulnerable. So he puts Jacob through a series of tests to make sure it's Esau. And so in verses 21 and 22, he touches Jacob, feels the hairy arms, right? In verse 22, he listens carefully to Jacob's voice. In verse 24, he asks Jacob to swear an oath in the name of God that he's Esau. And in verse 27, he comes near to to Jacob to smell if he has the smell of Esau. And during this exchange, Isaac lies to his father, or Jacob lies to his father Isaac, three different times, once even invoking God's name in his lie. Jacob is suspicious because even, or Isaac is suspicious because even though Jacob smells like Esau and feels like Esau, he sounds like Jacob, but despite his suspicions, Isaac gives him the blessing, and what a blessing it is, a blessing of riches and wealth and influence and power. If, If Isaac's blessing filled a bottle, he poured the entire bottle out on Jacob, thinking it was Esau. And no sooner does he finish, and Esau returns. But there's no blessing left for Esau. Isaac had schemed to withhold his blessing from Jacob, and inadvertently withheld it from his favored son, Esau, and Isaac is so upset at the end of the chapter that he starts shaking. And Esau is enraged. Enraged that Jacob not only conned him out of his birthright for a bowl of stew, but that now he's stolen his blessing as well. He'll grasper indeed. The consequences of this awful event are immediate. Esau makes a public oath in the name of God to murder Jacob as soon as their father dies. The jostling within the womb that Rebekah experienced during her pregnancy has escalated into a full-blown murder plot, Cain and Abel all over again. Hastily, Rebekah sends Jacob away to her uncle's house to protect him from Esau's murderous rage. And thus, Jacob leaves the land of promise penniless, with parents who are at odds with each other, and with a brother who has taken an oath to murder him. Now, friends, this story is not intended to teach us about marriage. It's not intended to teach us about parenting. The plot line of Genesis 12 through 50 is about how God will use this one family to reverse the avalanche of sin And bring God's blessing to all the other families. And the drama of this story is the fact that because of Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob's actions, that plan now appears to be in jeopardy. If Esau succeeds in murdering Jacob, the plan is over. And how can Jacob and his descendants inherit a land that he's not even living in because he ran for his life and is living in exile at his uncle's house? This story is an example of what happens when the people of God live as if the plan of God depends entirely upon them. And so let's consider three consequences that happen when we live that way that we see in this text. When we live that way as though everything depends upon us, we try to manipulate our circumstances. We manipulate. The temptation to manipulate is part of the human condition, let's be real. But what makes this story so troubling is the fact that manipulation is being done in God's name in order to advance God's plan. It's one thing when we manipulate to get something we want and we know that we shouldn't. We're all tempted to do that and when we do, the Spirit of God convicts us and we confess it to God as sin and we make things right. But it's quite another thing to resort to manipulation in order to advance what we believe God's plan is. Because when we do that, we are so convinced of the rightness of our cause that we are blind to the sinfulness of our actions. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal once said that people never do evil so cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Now, Pascal was a Christian, committed follower of Jesus, but he knew the human heart, and he knew that he and his fellow Christians could justify lots of bad things if they believed that the cause was right. Consider a couple of examples. I have a friend whose two adult sons had a huge blow-up that lasted several years where they wouldn't speak to each other. And as a mother, it broke her heart, and she prayed constantly for her son's reconciliation. She believed that it was God's plan for them to reconcile. And one day, one of those sons came to her near Mother's Day and said, what do you want for Mother's Day? And she said, "Don't get me a gift. Just talk to your brother and reconcile with your brother. Let that be my Mother's Day gift." And as soon as she said the words, she knew it was a mistake because he grew angry. Because he felt that she was manipulating him, using something called emotional blackmail to get him to do something she wasn't ready, he wasn't ready to do. Now as a postscript to that story, those sons did work things out in their own time and in their own way. I see this temptation to manipulate circumstances when we share our faith in Jesus with people that we care about. We so badly want them to come to know Jesus like we do that we're tempted to be manipulated and try to orchestrate it happening, right? We set up chance encounters for them with people that we think are going to persuade them to follow Jesus, or we invite them to an event that appears to be one thing, like a dinner or a concert, and lo and behold, it's actually an evangelistic event. And often, these manipulative actions drive non-Christians further away from the gospel. I see the temptation to manipulate when we confront injustice in our society. We're so passionate about making something right or confronting something that's wrong that we resort to manipulation to do it. Our cause is just, but when we work as though it all depends on us, we easily resort to manipulating circumstances. Consequence number two from this story When we live as though everything depends upon us, we also become deceitful. We become deceitful. Manipulation and deceit go hand in hand. Now, the temptation to deceive, to lie, is part of the human condition. It's no accident that one of the Ten Commandments is all about this, right? Because God knows that all of us are tempted to lie. Part of our spiritual formation is God transforming within us that part of us that's prone to deception. But what is particularly troubling about this story is God's people lying to each other in God's name in order to advance God's plan. Being so convinced God wants something done that we're willing to deceive And I'm not talking about lying to Nazi soldiers to protect Jewish refugees during World War II. I'm talking about lying to the people in our lives that we're in relationship with, that we're called to protect. Three times in this chapter, Jacob will look his father Isaac in the eye and lie to him. My friends, when we live this way, our efforts to advance God's plan make us less like Jesus. Instead of our character being formed and shaped into the image of our beautiful Savior, we find ourselves becoming less and less like him. Instead of spiritual formation, we experience spiritual deformation happening. And finally, a third consequence. When we live as though it all depends on us, we destroy our relationships. We destroy our relationships. How could we not That's what manipulation and deceit do. And and the most obvious example from this chapter is the damage done to the relationship of Jacob and Esau. Sibling rivalry has escalated into a, a murderous plot that has the potential to derail God's plan for the human race. Talk about high stakes. But you know the less obvious example from this story is that when Rebecca sends her son Jacob away to her uncle's house, she will never see him again. In verse 13, Rebecca said, Let any curse fall upon me. Little did she know that that curse would be not seeing her son again, as he spent 20 years in exile and she died before he returned. Friends, manipulation and deception destroy our relationships and it's hard enough to deal with our own propensity to manipulate and to deceive. But when we do it in God's name to achieve and advance God's plan, we destroy the relationships that we're called to protect. Can't we all point to ministries and churches that were fueled by manipulation and deceit? And can't we see the fruit of those ministries of broken relationships and damaged people? These are the consequences of living as though God's plan depends entirely on us. It's kind of hard to find any good news in this story. It ends with a lot of unanswered questions. How will God advance his plan to bring his blessings to the rest of the world through Jacob if Esau murders Jacob? How will Jacob inherit the land if he's not even living in the land? But the good news is that God's plan will still advance. My friends, God does not need our help. God's plan does not depend on you. God's plan does not depend on me. And this should be a liberating truth. Because when we carry God's plan on our shoulders, As if it all depended on us, it's a crushing burden. And yet I'm convinced many Christians live this way today. They feel like if they don't bring their loved ones to Jesus, no one will. If they don't fulfill the great commission, no one will. If they don't correct the injustices that they see, no one will. And because they're rightfully passionate about these things that God is passionate about, they take the full weight of them on their shoulders. Did you know that Jesus faced this temptation? After his baptism, he was led by the spirit into the wilderness, and Jesus was tempted to manipulate his circumstances, to turn the stones into bread to satisfy his hunger, to hurl himself from the top of the temple so he could make a spectacular entrance and everybody would believe who he was, to even bow down and worship the evil one himself as a shortcut around the suffering and the cross. But instead of giving in to those temptations, Jesus trusted his Father's plan and trusted the leading of the Spirit Two weeks ago was the anniversary of my ordination as a pastor and at my ordination service my friend Todd preached and one of the things he said to me he said Tim as a pastor you're going to have lots of projects over your lifetime of ministry in fact your ministry is going to be filled with projects but Tim your projects are not God's project. At the end of your ministry, you are God's project. And the thing that will count about your ministry as a pastor is the kind of person you became during your lifetime as a pastor. God's plan does not depend on me. So let's get rid of the saying, pray as though everything depended on God and work as though everything depended on us. Let's replace it with something like this. God's plan does not depend on us, but God invites us by faith into a relationship that will transform us and make us more like Jesus so we can find our unique little place in the plan of God. It's not as pithy. It won't fit on that piece of inspirational artwork but it's freeing. Let me close with these words of Jesus that I so wish Isaac and his family could have heard. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus, and they stand in such contrast to the story that we read. Lord, thank you that in these stories, the hero is you. You are the one that is working to advance your plan despite the weaknesses, sins, and frailties of your people. And thank you that that is still true for us today. May we walk, Lord, the easy yoke and find rest for our souls. For we pray these things in Christ's name.
0: Amen.